feel like a side hug is maybe the best way to start this conference. <laughs> but thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate you and your friendship a lot. Um, well, hey, thank you guys so much for letting me come and talk about depression. It's been funny talking about this conference with friends and um, just kind of saying, I'm really excited to go lead a conference in depression. And it's kind of like, oh, okay. But I am. Um, and let me kind of start, I guess, with, with two things is before we kind of get started tonight. One is, you know, I was talking with my kids and my wife right before I left yesterday, and I was doing kind of a vain thing. I was like, hey, what do you guys think about, do I need to shave this or should I, like, keep this? And my son said, Dad, I think you should keep it. He's, he's nine. He said, Dad, I think you should keep it. It makes you look more depressed. And I was like, all right. I think I will do that. I think I will. And the second thing I want to say, and this is really why I am excited. I, mean, I was telling Robert um, at dinner last night, this is a, a beautiful thing that we all get to be a part of. You know, when I was at my most severe, um, I guess at my most severe bout with depression, I was in college, there, there really, nothing like this was available. I'd never even heard of really any pastors or any Christians I knew that owned a struggle with anxiety or depression. And so to have a conference is a really beautiful thing, and I really am honored to, to come be a part of it. And I guess that's the second thing, is that this really is. A lot of everything I'm doing this, this um, week and weekend is so rooted in my own story that it's almost impossible not to kind of share when I feel like it's appropriate about what this has looked like for me. So I want you to know from the outset that the depression kind of is my story, and I think will be my story um, to the end of my, my life. And with that being said, what I want to do tonight is I want to kind of just set us up, and really if you think about the three talks, this is kind of more overview. Tomorrow night's a little bit more practical and personal, kind of more close up. And then Saturday night's going to be more, what do we do, especially if we have friends. So a lot of you are here and you're not, this is not your story. What do you do? How can we care and have compassion for one another? But tonight what I want to do is, and each night we're going to have kind of a background passage. I'm not teaching from a passage, but I do want to have a, a, a passage in the background. And so I'm actually going to take the same passage that Robert was talking about last night. And I'm just going to read select verses from Psalm 42. The verses that I think really give shape and voice to, uh, to depression. And so I'm going to start with that. Psalm 42. I'm just going to read select verses. Here's what the psalmist says. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival, and my soul is now cast down within me. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Let me pray for us, and then I want to kind of jump in to what I want to talk about tonight. But let me pray first. Our Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for your word. Lord, I do thank you that you give us the Psalms. I thank you that you give us such a clear message that we, you love when we bring what is actually in us, depression and all, sorrow, sadness, anger, bitterness and all, and we just sit before you in our not okayness. And Lord, I pray that, would you give us the grace to do that with each other? Would you give us the grace to do that with you starting tonight? 
to be not okay before you and to be not okay with one another. And Lord, you know in our pride, in our desire to appear as one thing, even though we know in reality we're another, would you give us the grace and the humility that we need to be like the psalmist, um, to be real and, and, and vulnerable and, and honest before you and, and before one another. I, I pray for that grace for myself, and I pray for that grace for my friends. We pray these things with Christ in your name. Amen. So I kind of I grew up um, a big Robin Williams fan. I mean, I'm 35, so Robin Williams movies really did had an impact on me, like Mrs. Doubtfire, like really did help me process my parents' divorce. I mean, that sounds weird, but it really did. Um, you know, Dead Poet Society, I wasn't part of a boarding school, but if I was, man, could I relate to that movie. Um, <laughs> but even I mean, Goodwill Hunting, processing, you know, I mean, sometimes I feel like what I really need in my life was Robin Williams to, to press me against a wall and tell me it's not my fault over and over and over. And I think I, maybe I wouldn't be depressed anymore. I don't know. But Robin Williams' movies really did mean something to me. And so, like the rest of you, when I kind of heard about his, his death, you know, the way that he had severely struggled with depression and to a point where he killed himself, it, it kind of it hit me hard. And it made me sad. I didn't know him. But hearing that story made me really sad. But what I think made me sadder was reading blogs and responses written by well-meaning Christians trying to process Robin Williams. That really made me sad. Because it showed me, part of what Robert was talking about last night is so true, we don't know what to do with depression. Like, the church that should be, in Robert's words, a safe haven for fellow strugglers a place where we come and gladly admit our weakness because it's how we became Christians. It's just not, in most of our experiences, what church has been. It certainly hasn't been, in my experience, what church has been. And part of me wants to just start, ask, start with asking that question, why? Why is it that we're not a safe haven for each other to openly talk about our struggles with depression or anxiety, our struggles with those internal things that really do weigh us down and burden us to incredible you know, incredible ways. And I think, you know, as I think about that, there are kind of two things I think about. One is I think we're, we're a lot like Job's counselors. If you remember the book of Job, if you remember that story, Job is an incredible suffering. He's, he's you know, his weakness and his suffering is, is made, really, is, no one can miss it. And yet those friends come along and they want an answer. They want to tell him, Job, this is why you're suffering. This is why it's happening. And you remember the end, God comes and rebukes them severely and says, you don't know what you're talking about. But I think we're like them because we long for, we, we're, we're afraid of weakness because we long for things to be more black and white and we long for things to make sense and to fit. And so we don't know what to do with weakness and suffering. Therefore, we don't know what to do with depression. And yet, we're longing to admit our own weakness and suffering. We're longing for someone to see it. We're longing for someone to, to give shape and voice to it. This is the way I think about it. My, I have a, four kids. My youngest is about to be five, a little girl. And when she was about two or three, she was the world's worst hide-and-seek player. Like, just the worst. Because her thing was, you know, I, we were playing hide-and-seek with, you know, with the whole family, and my big kids would go and, and hide in these, you know, it's crazier the older your kids get, the better they get at hiding, which is like a metaphor, I think, for parenting. And then, but my youngest would do this thing every time, she was, again, two or three, she would go up into her, the closet in her room, 
shut the door, and then she would immediately start very loudly saying, in here, I'm in here, dad, I'm in here, I'm in here. And I was like, okay, oh, I failed you, you know, shocker. But I think about that a lot because I think, if you're like me, we're, like, we're just like her. We love to hide, but we long to be found. And I think what I hope this time is, is that we would find and be found in our own stories about depression and anxiety this week and this weekend. That we would find and be found by each other, that we would find and be found by the Lord. And all I want to do tonight is kind of set us up for what, I, you know, what are we talking about when we talk about depression. So what I want to do tonight is talk about just two things. First, I want to talk about the condition. What is it like? How does it feel? What does it affect when you struggle with depression? And then second, I want to talk about the complexity. How should we begin from any kind of Christian point of view to think about it? That's all I want to do tonight. Pretty, pretty simple. And so first, I just want to dive in to the condition. How does it feel? And I want to do two things. First, talk about how it feels, and then second, talk about what it affects. So first, what does it feel like? How does it feel? And, and I hope, basically, these are things that have been helpful for me to process my own struggle with this. So I hope they're going to be helpful to you as well, just to give voice, just to give shape, to give words, to give language for what it feels like to wrestle and struggle with depression. So first, I think it feels like, to steal on from Dexter, it feels like a dark passenger, this dark presence that always seems to be lurking. That's why the psalmist in 42 says he describes it almost as having an inner critic or an inner cynic own loop, constantly saying, where is your God? Where is your God? Where is your God? That's why one of my friends, I love the way he says, one of my best friends likes to say that struggling with depression feels like you have an, an inner bully who will not let you go, who will not let you have a past, who constantly haunts you and berates you and condemns you and knocks you down. That's why Spurgeon, as we heard last night, described it as this undefinable, shapeless mist. And he called it an all-beclouding hopelessness that holds your spirit captive in a dungeon of dark depression. Or I love the way that uh, one of my favorite authors who severely struggled with depression to the point where he killed himself was David Foster Wallace. And he has this whole article on what he describes as the bad thing. And here's what he says. It's a little bit long, but bear with me. It's worth it. It's one of the best things I've ever read in describing it. It feels like a dark passenger always with you. He said this. He said, imagine a really painful disease that, say, attacked your legs and your throat and resulted in a really bad pain and paralysis and all-around agony in these areas. The disease would be bad enough, obviously, but the disease would also be open-ended. You wouldn't be able to do anything about it. Your legs would be all paralyzed and would hurt like crazy, but you wouldn't be able to run for help for those poor legs, just exactly because your legs would be too sick for you to run anywhere at all. Your throat would burn like crazy and you'd think it was just going to explode, but you wouldn't be able to call out to any doctors or anyone for help precisely because your throat would be too sick for you to do so. This is the way the bad thing works. It's especially good at attacking your defense mechanisms. The way to fight against or get away from the bad thing is clearly just to think differently, to reason and argue with yourself, just to change the way you're perceiving and sensing and processing stuff. But you need your mind to do this. Your brain cells with their atoms and your mental powers and all that yourself. And that's exactly what the bad thing has made too sick to work right. This is why for me, the, the question as I began wrestling in college with my own depression was, this was always the question, am I depressed because I'm making poor choices? 
Or am I making poor choices because I'm depressed? And I think the older I get, the more I think, yes. It's how it works. There are times and places in our lives where depression clearly is a result of certain choices that we make. Psalm 32, David talks about he's depressed because of his choices with Bathsheba. And yet, there are times in my life where it seems like I'm making these choices or failing to make certain choices because of this thing called depression that is crippling me. This dark passenger that's always there. I remember going, my first time ever going to counseling, my mom had set me up with her, her counselor, which was probably its own mistake, looking back. But I remember going and talking to him. I just could not get out of bed. Like, I was in college, and, and I knew some of the circumstances. I'd, I'd just gone through a pretty devastating breakup with a girl that I was sure I was going to marry. And we had struggled in a variety of ways. So I had a lot of shame, I had a lot of fear, and I knew that was causing some of it, but it was so severe where I literally would sleep entire days away. Like one of my most vivid memories of sleeping a day away was I lived in a fraternity hall at the time, and my fraternity brothers had, had noticed, they had taken notice that I was sleeping, like we got to 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 p.m., and they had all gathered around my room because they were just waiting. When was Sammy going to wake up? And then they actually, like, I think I woke up at 6 o'clock that day, and I walked out, and there were probably 10 of them. They just started clapping. <laughs> That's probably something I need to work out in counseling as I say that. <laughs> a shameful moment. <laughs> but there was a sense in which I knew I needed help. So my mom sent me with her counselor, and I went, and I remember saying to him, I just can't bring myself to get out of bed. I'll never forget his response. He said, it's easy. You just put two feet on the ground and stand up. And I don't know that I've ever wanted to hurt someone (laughs) the way that I wanted to hurt him because he clearly didn't understand. He clearly had never wrestled with depression. That when when you feel like you're being bullied by this dark passenger, it makes the simplest things like even getting dressed, getting out of bed, getting dressed, seem impossible. But second, it also feels like you're a hopeless case. Again, Psalmist in 42 gives some powerful images. We can't have time for all of them, but some of them, dying of thirst is what it feels like. Eating at a buffet of tears, which would be worse than a golden corral. (laughs) Being emptied out like a leftover drink at a party. Drowning in the ocean. I I love how we take what he says in in verse 7, deep calls to deep, as this beautiful thing of how how he loves us. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am drowning. God, I'm drowning. Do you care about me? You're, You're crushing me. I can't get a sense of anything. And then he says, it feels like a fatal wound in your bones. And this is a long way of saying one thing. He felt absolutely hopeless about life. He felt absolutely hopeless about himself. And he, and he felt, in this real honest moment, he felt really hopeless about God's work in his life. Absolutely hopeless. And when you're in that place of depression, you're in that place of deep anxiety, that's exactly how you feel. You feel like a hopeless case. And so this is why the natural conclusion, if you're in that thinking, is to end it all. That's the ultimate extreme because you feel so hopeless, there is no hope left for you. And the best answer in that place is just simply to end it. This is why I love, there's a character in the novel Infinite Jest, her name is Kate Gompert, and she has tried to kill herself for the fourth time and so she, she finally, she, I guess her, her parents find her, they check her into this outpatient uh, place. And this young doctor, 
who's kind of fresh off, out of med school, is coming to meet with her, and he's trying genuinely to understand what he can do to help her. And she is very frustratingly trying to explain why it is she wants to die. And she has this great just conversation with him. I'm going to read it for us that I think nails what I'm talking about in terms of feeling hopeless. Here's what she says to him. So he's coming to the office, and she's just tried to try to kill herself, and she's trying to explain why she wants to kill herself. And here's what she says to him. She says, no matter what I do, it gets worse and worse. It's there more and more. This filter drops down, and the feeling makes the fear of the feeling way worse. And after a couple weeks, it's there all the time, the feeling, and I'm totally inside it. I'm in it, and everything has to pass through it to get in, and I don't want to smoke pot, and I don't want to work or go out or read or watch TV or go out or stay in or either do anything or not do anything. I don't want anything except for the feeling to go away. But it doesn't. Part of the feeling is being willing to do anything to make it go away. Understand that. Anything. Do you understand? It's not, this is the line, it's not wanting to hurt myself. It's wanting not to hurt. It's not wanting to hurt myself. It's wanting to not hurt. If you've ever been in a place of deep depression, you that resonates. So first, it feels like you're this hopeless case. It feels like this dark passenger. But then third, and this is one of my favorite images, I think, to describe where does it come from, is it feels like a bruise, but a bruise in your mind. There's a, a, a book called The Marriage Plot, and there's this character named Darlene, and she's talking in this AA group about the difference between addiction and depression. And she says the difference between addiction and depression is you can't get clean from depression And then she says in this beautiful line, she says, depression is like a bruise, a bruise in your mind. You just have to be careful not to touch it, but it's there and it hurts all the time. The reason I love that image is think about the last time you got a bruise. Think about the last bruise that was in your body. Like sometimes you genuinely know how a bruise got there. Like it was the middle of the night, you woke up, you were stumbling to the bathroom, you like rammed into a chair, a piece of furniture, there's a bruise in your arm when you wake up the next morning, you know where the bruise came from. But a lot of times, if you're like me, sometimes a bruise shows up and you literally, generally have no idea where that bruise came from. And I think for me, that's a helpful image when we begin to think about depression or anxiety is there's a real sense in which sometimes you genuinely know how it got there. And sometimes, and this is what we as Christians don't know what to do with, sometimes you genuinely don't. And it's what do you do in that situation when repentance isn't the answer? When confessing sin isn't the answer, when you have this invasive emotional presence in your life, but you don't know where it's coming from or what to do with it. So this is a little bit of the madness of it. This is a little bit of how it feels. But then let's think for a second about what it affects. And it affects a lot. First, it affects the way we feel things. And we feel a lot of things. We feel sadness. That's why William Cooper said, I was struck with such a dejection of spirits as none but they who have felt the same can have the least conception of. Deep feelings of of overwhelming sadness. But then we also feel deep, overwhelming feelings of anger. Feelings of resentment, being easily irritated. That's why I love when author says that depression is often anger turned inward. There's a sense in which it can be fueled by resentment and irritation. Also feelings of worthlessness. A a constant self-comparison with zero self-compassion. One of the cruelest things genuinely about depression is you genuinely do not believe anyone could love you, much less like you, God included. 
You don't see how anyone could like you, much less love you, God included. And then there are these feelings of panic, where we overestimate certain threats and dangers, and we underestimate our ability to deal with them, and we feel like like a, a balloon that is about to pop. Or if you've ever gone to one of those freestyle Coke machines, which is a little little taste of heaven, and you you feel you're pressing the button, and if you're like me, you, you want to get just enough, but sometimes you get a little too much, and it just begins overflowing from your cup. And sometimes those feelings of panic, those feelings of anxiety, that's exactly how it feels. You're just overflowing. You can't control it. And then at its worst, you feel suicidal. This is why Spurgeon, again, Spurgeon said, death would be welcome as a relief to those whose depressed spirits make their existence a living death. Are good men ever permitted to suffer thus? Indeed they are. And some of them are even all their lifetimes subject to bondage, feeling as if even God himself had quite forgotten him. This was me at my most depressed, feeling all of these things and more. And this is why when I was 21 years old, I came pretty close to killing myself. I was dating my now wife at the time, and I was the jealous boyfriend like, and when I say jealous, that's not the right word. I was like the crazy possessive boyfriend. And we had we'd been dating probably for a couple months, and I was severely struggling. Mean, I was still severely struggling with depression. I, I had gotten in some medicine, um, and the medicine that I'd owned, I was on, Depakote and Effexor at the time, and it created for me this intense weight gain that was also furthered by the fact that I literally ate a Wendy's number six spicy chicken with a large frosty Let's be honest, I mean, every night, essentially. That, that might have been driving it more than... Those things were related, but that one probably had something to do with it. But I'd never been so low in my life. I really was deeply, deeply struggling. And it was coming out in this kind of crazy... I just was... I felt so out of control. And, and, but this is how it works, is you know, you know you're being crazy, or you know you're, you're out of control, but you can't... You feel like you can't stop yourself. And the way it came to a head for me was my, my now wife was coming uh, on our family vacation to the beach with us. We were going to Tybee Island in Georgia. And she, had, she was staying in her house in the guest room. And for some reason, she and my sister, I have a sister who's four years younger, they, were really, they just really hit it off. And they were in my sister's room just kind of laughing and talking. And I did that thing where I went inward, spiraled out of control, got really, really sad, really, really angry. I wrote a suicide note, and I left it on my pillow, and then I got into my car, and I just drove. And I didn't really have a plan, but I, I wanted to not hurt. And I stayed, I ended up driving to Toomey Hospital in Sumter, South Carolina, and just parked for about probably an hour or two, trying to figure out what I was going to do. And then thankfully decided to drive back home when I got back to my house. Um, uh, my mom had called the cops. And cops were there. And my stepdad was feverishly searching for his shotguns. And everyone was crying. Um, and that's when I knew I needed, I needed help. And it's, it's sad to me, it's crazy to me that that was what it took, but that was what it took. And for, and for a lot of you, you've, you've been there or you've been further. 
And I, and I love that we get to do this together because I love that, man, please, if that is where you are, there are so many resources. Please, please take advantage. Please take advantage this week. And obviously, I would, would love to talk. And I know the counselors here would love to talk. And I know the pastors here would love to talk. But that's where it got to. And that's why I've always loved Elijah's story in 1 Kings 19 because Elijah got somewhere close. If you know that story, he kind of has that weird standoff, but he leaves it feeling incredibly depressed, and he goes into the cave. And I think what I love about that story is I think most of us, our view of God would say, okay, God's going to come, like, rip him out of that cave. He's like, Elijah, what are you doing? Like, why are you, what, what's wrong with you? And the reason that I love that story is that's not at all how God meets him. First, God literally, he feeds him. And then he meets him in that still small voice, in that incredibly gentle way, which is not the way that we think he's going to meet us. And, and that's exactly the way God meets us still, in these feelings, these overwhelming feelings. So first it affects our feelings, but then it affects our thinking. It doesn't just affect our feeling, it affects our, the way that we think in a lot of different ways. First, it affects the way that we, we think in extremes, all or nothing thinking. I'm either a complete success or I'm an utter failure. We also think in a lot in the language of shoulds. We wake up in the morning and we think, I should be doing this, I shouldn't have done that, and we get overwhelmed with what my friend Kevin Twitt calls shooting all over yourself, where you really believe you just should, I should be doing this and I shouldn't be doing that, and you just, that's, like you wake up, if you're in the struggle with this, this is how you wake up thinking. I should have woken up earlier. I should have exercised this morning. I should have read my Bible for longer. I should have prayed for longer. And you immediately enter into your day with that filter of shame, which is another thing that it affects. We have this filter uh, where everything gets filtered through our depression. Everything gets filtered through our anxiety. I love the way that Ed Wilch talks about it. He's got this little article. You've got to, you can Google it and find it. It's well worth reading. It's called Depression's Odd Filter. Here's what he says. He says, someone says to you, I love you. You hear nothing. Actually, you hear something. You hear a little voice in your brain that says, I'm worthless. You're only saying you love me because you think you have to. Somehow, from the mouths of other people to your ear, all words of blessing and encouragement get tumbled upside down and backward and confirm your suspicions about yourself. You're an abject failure, unloved, unlovable, and everyone knows it. There are hundreds of variations. You look nice today. Push it through the filter of depression and you get, not true, I know I'm ugly. Or you seem to be feeling a little better today. This means, oh, you don't want to talk to me anymore. This is your brain on depression. And we could add, this is your brain on shame. And this is why conferences like this are my nightmare. Because anytime I ever speak or preach in my large group, any kind of setting, I dread the after part. Because it's like, even if a student or even if someone says, oh, I really thank you. I'm like, you're a good liar. You don't mean that. And it's like this sort of, you know, I don't know if you play video games at all. It's probably inappropriate for some of us to play video games. Myself included. I'll just own that. <laughs> but it's like you have this shield and no, no kind of encouragement, no kind of genuine compliment can ever get through. This is why if, if you struggle with this, you, you don't know how to take a compliment. It's like when you see a squirrel trying to cross the road, <laughs> it's like stuck. That's you trying to take a compliment. That's me trying to take a compliment. It affects our thinking. 
But then it affects, we also, it affects our thinking because we do this thing called, we can something called mind reading or fortune telling, where we really think we know what people think, and we really think we can predict the future. I've always loved one of my favorite poems dealing with this. It comes from this guy, Philip Lopate. And uh, it's this poem about his own insecurity in his depression, his own insecurity and his anxiety. And here's the poem. We who are your closest friends feel the time has come to tell you that every Thursday we have been meeting as a group to devise ways to keep you in perpetual uncertainty, frustration, discontent, and torture by, by neither loving you as much as you want nor cutting you adrift. Your analyst is in on it, plus your boyfriend and your ex-husband, and we have pledged to disappoint you as long as you need us. In announcing our association, we realize we have placed in our hands a possible antidote against uncertainty, indeed against ourselves. But since our Thursday nights have brought us to a community of purpose rare in itself with you as the natural center, we feel hopeful you will continue to make unreasonable demands for affection, if not as a consequence of your disastrous personality, then for the good of the collective. And anytime I think I know exactly what anyone and everyone is thinking, I read this poem and remind myself that I don't. And this is some of the ways that it affects us. But it also affects our doing. It makes simple things that should be so easy seem hard. We withdraw and we isolate. And we have this total loss of interest that Robert was talking about last night. Just a loss of interest in the things that we used to love we now lose interest in. But then I want to talk just a little bit about the complexity of it. Because if this is what it feels like, how in the world do we begin to think about it as Christians? How, how in the world do we begin to understand it? And I think, quickly, we could say there are different approaches that we've seen, that we still see. And that there are three main different approaches that typically um, we talk about when it comes to depression. First, we just have the medical model. The medical model says that depression is a sickness that needs to be cured, needs to be treated. It's a physical problem. And so diet, exercise, and medicine are the cures. And this is typically how secular culture is, how our culture typically thinks about what you do when you get depressed. Second, there's the emotional model. Uh, the res- basically, that depression or anxiety is a result of negative emotional experiences, trauma, abuse, deep wounds. Counseling is the cure. Talk therapy is the cure. Or behavior therapy is the cure. And this is typically how our, our therapeutic culture approaches it. And then what we're more guilty of is in, in the Christian world is what we can simply call the spiritual model, that it's the result of sin. And repentance is the cure. And I think our temptation, because you can't read Psalm 42 and think that depression is this simple. The Bible won't let us think that depression is this simple. There's a real sense in which depression, that the Bible wants to root our depression not in one thing, but in a variety of things. And our temptation is in the name of simplifying, in the name of trying to make sense, we want to root it in one of those things. And instead, I think the Bible is telling us it's rooted in all of those things. And this is why, and Robert said this last night, when I am depressed, who do I go see first? Do I go see a doctor? Do I go see a counselor? Do I go see a pastor or a Christian friend? And the answer is yes. There's a sense in which the complexity of depression, the complexion of anxiety, runs deep. And can medicine be helpful? Absolutely. Is medicine the silver bullet? Absolutely not. Can counseling be helpful? Absolutely. Is counseling the silver bullet? Absolutely not. 
Counseling is like a good pair of jeans. You want it to fit well and not make you hate yourself more, and that's an important part of this struggle. There's an important part of beginning to talk about the things that have shaped you and, and your depression or anxiety. Is depression rooted in, in sin? Is it rooted in idolatry? Absolutely. Is it always rooted in sin? Is it always rooted in idolatry? Absolutely not. Martin Luther, and it's funny, like, Christians long, this is what sometimes drives me crazy, when you go back and read, even all the way back to John Cassian, the second century monk, or even let's just take Martin Luther, who we heard about tonight, even Luther was understood this, the complexity of a condition like depression, which he deeply struggled with. Here's what he wrote about it. He said, when I was ill, the physicians made me take as much medicine as though I had been a great bull. I do not deny that medicine is a gift of God, nor do I refuse to acknowledge science and the skill of many physicians, but take the best of them. How far are they from perfection? When I feel indisposed by observing a strict diet and going to bed early, I generally manage to get around again. That is, if I can keep my mind tolerably at rest. I have no objection to the doctors acting upon certain theories, but at the same time, they must not expect us to be the slaves of their fancies. And what I hear Luther saying is medicine is absolutely helpful. It's not the silver bullet. Diet and exercise is absolutely helpful. It's not the silver bullet. Repentance is absolutely helpful. It's not the silver bullet. And y'all, we do not like this answer because we do not know what to do with sadness. We do not know what to do with our own sadness and we do not know what to do with each other's sadness. We, we, do, we want it to be easy. This is why, you know, when I was in... So in my story, got really depressed in college. After college, kind of entered into a season of real growth, like in a lot of ways, went to seminary, got married, started having babies. It was a beautiful thing. And really the depression seemed kind of chill. You know, it seemed kind of in the corner watching Netflix or something, but like not bothering me. (laughs) And then I go to Georgia Southern. I take my first call in RUF and I moved to Statesboro, Georgia, and it resurfaced with a vengeance. And part of that, the pressures of ministry, part of that certain sin patterns in my life that were like really taking root, and I remember going to meet with this counselor who was owned of the position, depression is always rooted in sin. And I remember sitting across the table from him at a Ruby Tuesday in Statesboro, Georgia, which in and of itself was depressing <laughs> because we're at Ruby Tuesday and I think I had gotten a burger and it was like one of the best restaurants in Statesboro. But I remember him saying, he said to me, Sammy, depression, I believe, is always rooted in sin, Always. Because if it is, that means I can always get better by repenting. And again, the second moment in my life where I broke the sixth commandment and and wanted to to hurt him because I knew it wasn't that simple. I knew that it wasn't that simple. And I think even just a, a, a cursory reading of the Bible, you have David who says in Psalm 32, yes, my depression, God, is is." absolutely rooted in sin, but then you have Hannah in 1 Samuel who gets depressed because she can't have a baby. It's totally rooted in these painful circumstances. Then you have Jonah who gets depressed because God simply won't do what he wants God to do. And then you have our brother Jeremiah who makes Sufjan Stevens seem happy, who just, have you read the book of Lamentations? It's like, eat your heart out, Bon Iver. I mean, it's the most depressing thing you've ever read. And it seemed to be part of his makeup, part of his personality. The Bible won't let us. It won't let us root depression. It won't let us root anxiety in one thing. It won't let us simplify our suffering. It won't let us simplify our sadness. 
there's no easy fix. And I think, I think the point of this is so that we would trust Jesus. Like, does that sound crazy? Maybe the point of the complexity of our suffering is to throw us upon the rock of Jesus and say, Jesus, I have nowhere else to go. Please, Lord, would you help me? You know, this, was, this is why I think it, it's, it's not simple. And, and Martin Lloyd-Jones got this. He said this. He said, many Christian people are, in fact, in utter ignorance concerning this realm where the borderlines between the physical, psychological, and spiritual meet. Frequently, I have found that such church leaders had treated those whose trouble was obviously mainly physical or psychological in a purely spiritual manner. And if you do so, you don't only, you not only don't help, you aggravate the problem. And we are guilty of doing this with one another. I'll never forget, this was, this is, this is always what I think about. I, I'd, when I'd come out of that depression in college, I was going into seminary, and I mainly was thinking about it from a spiritual perspective. And I remember meeting with a friend who was, she was not a Christian. We went to school together, grew up in high school together. She'd gone off to Washington Lee. I was at South Carolina. We'd both kind of come home to Sumter after college. And she was severely depressed. I mean, severely, to the point where no amount of medicine was helping. She couldn't do anything. It was taking, like, physically, you could just tell she was an absolute wreck. And she wanted to talk, because she knew depression was part of my story, she wanted to talk with me about it. And I remember we went to TCBY in Sumter, and I remember saying to her, the answer is Jesus. If you just would, would just put your faith in Jesus, this depression would go away. And I, I wish I could go back to that conversation and just sit with her. And just eat yogurt with her. And just listen. And just ask, tell me what it's been like for you. And I, Jesus, juked the mess out of her. And I, I, still, I still regret it. There's a, a scene in the movie Lars and the Real Girl, which is objectively the weirdest Ryan Gosling movie in the world. Um, I'm, I'm going to assume you haven't seen it. Uh, the storyline is uh, Ryan Gosling's character, he's, he's stuck. He's a weird guy. Wrestles with anxiety, wrestles with depression socially incredibly awkward and he decides to, to grow in his awkwardness. He's gonna get, he essentially gets a blow-up doll and pretends like she's a real person and his real girlfriend. And it's a beautiful film. The community, it's a small kind of Lutheran community and they're trying to figure out what to do with it. His, his brother thinks he's crazy. They need to just confront him. Like, what is he doing? Like, he literally will dress her and he takes her in a wheelchair all around town and talks to her like she's real. It's a weird movie. I mean, it's worth watching, but it's weird. And so... As he's meeting with this doctor, this community doctor, who they all go to church together in this Lutheran church, uh, she's trying to coach them through what to do. Do they just confront him? Do they just try to gently bear with him? And they decide they're going to gently bear with him. So the community, in this really weird but beautiful way, starts treating her, her name is Bianca, like she's real. And it's a way of loving him, just kind of sitting and, and bearing with his craziness. And as they do that, he has this moment where he decides Bianca, it's time for, I guess you would say it's time for Bianca to die. So they go out to this lake and they're having this picnic lunch with his brother and his brother's wife. And then Bianca, they go swimming and Bianca drowns. They rush her to the hospital. Again, weird movie. (laughs) But there's this beautiful scene where they decide to have a funeral for her, this community. 
And there's a scene right before, I guess it's right after the funeral, where these old ladies from the Lutheran church, they bring over casseroles, and, and, and Lars, Ryan Gosling's character, says, you know, you guys didn't have to do that. And they say, I love this line, they say, we brought casseroles, we came over to sit. That's what people do when tragedy strikes. We don't know how to sit. I don't know how to sit. And this is exactly what God was saying to Job's counselors at the end. I wanted you to sit with my servant Job. Because sometimes life is hard and we don't have all the answers. And, and one of the best things that we can do is simply sit with people in sadness. And I just want to close with this. We have a God who comes And he sits with us in our sadness and suffering. And he more than sits with us. He actually takes our place. He so enters into our condition. He so enters into our complexity that he's called the friend of sinners. And the wonderful counselor. In Isaiah, in my favorite only verse I'd ever want tattooed somewhere on me, but can't pull it off because it wouldn't work with my body is Isaiah 42.3. Do you know Isaiah 42.3? Where the heart of Jesus is revealed to those of us who find ourselves in this constant struggle of with depression and anxiety. Isaiah 42.3 says, in this beautiful life-giving way, a bruised reed he will not break, in a faintly burning wick he will not quench. The good news about Jesus for those of us who are depressed and for those of us, whatever our suffering and sadness is, is that he's gentle with us in the very places we're often hardest in ourselves. I'll close with this. My, my favorite scene in Harry Potter is the scene where Dobby meets Harry for the first time. Dobby's little house elf. And he shows up, and you remember the scene? Harry, he he's, can't wait to meet Harry. He's heard so much about Harry. Harry's this great, he's the great, going to be the, the victor. He's going to be the anointed one. And Harry immediately starts asking Dobby about himself, how he can help Dobby. And Dobby has this great line where he says, Dobby has heard of your greatness, but of your goodness, Dobby never knew. Sometimes the gift of depression, the gift of anxiety, is you get to taste this God who will not break a bruised reed. And of his goodness, we begin to more deeply know. Let's pray. Lord, would you meet us in this way even now, even tonight? Draw near to us. Be the God unto us who promises not to break a bruised reed or quench a faintly burning wick. We thank you that you are that and more. We thank you for that good news. May we cling to it tonight. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.